shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our second broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with new perspective based on cognitive function. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most basic social problems, disabilities, poverty, violence, crime, and all those society ills we rail against but with little regard to consequences and efficacy. I suggested in the last podcast episode that our discussion would be about special education today. As school begins across the nation, I've made the decision to move the special education topic to the fourth podcast. Today, I would like to bring up the subject of autism, the diagnostic labeling, the impact, and the solutions. We will take calls today on special education if anyone is concerned or have questions, as well as on autism. As a retired school psychologist, parent advocacy was an important role in providing support for the child's special education evaluation, as well as considerations for the student's medical and therapeutic support. So if there are questions today in regards to any of those items, we will answer them. If not, most of our subject will be on autism. The autistic individual, and I digress to Temple Grandin, advocacy and observation in regards to her thoughts on autism. She is a person that has been Uh, a great advocate, and holds many conferences in regards to her own advocacy throughout her challenges in uh, being a professor and going through life. And on her website, in 2013, she notes that the American Psychiatric Association revised the diagnostic criteria for autism. This greatly broadened the spectrum. It now ranges from brilliant scientists, artists, and musicians to an individual who cannot dress himself or herself. Over the years, the diagnostic criteria have kept changing, and it is not precise like a lab test for strep throat. Labels such as autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, known as ADHD, sensory processing disorder, or learning disability, are often applied to the same child. In older children with no speech delay, the diagnosis sometimes switches back and forth between autism and ADHD. And later on in our podcast, I will note this kind of labeling and the importance of looking for ways in providing treatment. This labeling and diagnosis is the reason I felt it was important to discuss this prior to our special education podcast in regards to questions that parents or uh, professionals may have as it relates to 
evaluations, or general special education questions. So it was important to me to discuss autism in particular prior to our podcast on special education. Temple Grandin goes on to say that the autist, in her book, The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum, these kids often have uneven skills. We need to be a lot more flexible about things. Don't hold these math geniuses back. You're going to have to give them special ed in reading because that tends to be the pattern. But let them go ahead in math. So here again, we're discussing the current ideas about moving ahead on what disability means and what autism, how autism is reflected in as a spectrum in a wide range of functions. The root cause of autism has many theories. Rather than focusing on one particular reason, I would like to take a step back and consider what autism is in our society. This takes us back to the underlying principles of brain function. From a cognitive functioning aspect, it is very simple. Simply, autism brain function is another divergent effort on the part of human evolution to evolve. Evolution is not a perfect process. Its branches are only as good as the adaptation function is useful. Adaptation usefulness is only as good as it is accepted and has a purpose in our society as we dictate. As I mentioned in the first podcast, diversity is essential to meeting changing environments. The case for us having autistic individuals in society since man evolved is likely a very good chance. The limiting factors in our history of the success of autistic severity was likely the medical and ability to survive in an intense, difficult environment with rampant war and diseases. What has changed over the last 200 years that may reflect what is considered an increase in autism? Skip to present-day society. War is a distant place in most cases in our Western world, and disease is limited relative to just a few hundred years ago. With the decrease in mortality, the diversity curve actually should flatten and grow longer as more children with greater diverse cognitive abilities increases in our current environment. Autism in the less severe form of diagnosis is often labeled as high-functioning. This is a reference to a spectrum of functioning, functioning abilities and a recognition of shared traits under the umbrella of autism. What is not mentioned in this diagnosis are the traits we have if we are not considered autistic. The distinct difference of cognitive functioning that has not been distinguished from another, in other words, what, how do we consider ourselves different from those who have been diagnosed with autism? Not just simply those with autism have been distinguished 
from us. If we look at other diagnostic labels, one diagnosis stands out in particular as different, the bipolar diagnosis. When individuals' cognitive functioning aspects are compared with autistic individuals, a pattern of differences and similarities begin to appear. The functional differences may, for our purposes, be considered on different sides of the bell curve. And the general population, the greatest, lie in between. Differences in brain function when bipolar being organized, the brain being organized separately from the organization of the autistic mind, indicates the extremes of adaptive purposes for which each function at times is the best adaptation for the situation the individual finds itself in. From cognitive functioning perspective, Everyone who's not diagnosed likely falls in the middle of those extremes. The distinction may be observed by the medical field as a disease of the mind. For our talk revolution purposes, we ask the audience to reflect on these severe forms of brain function and how on the spectrum individuals may lie from one end to the other in abilities. Today, we will just discuss autism and we'll denote another broad podcast segment for bipolar disorder. It is important for me to bring the perspective to our audience, the importance of the spectrum for all of our mental health issues, and that evolution never stops only our ideas about what the purpose of humans are and what value are we willing to consider in another human being. Successful treatments often include an added level of structure, behavior support, and medicine. To understand why efforts may be successful, is to examine what autism functioning is. Despite differences between individuals, the pattern of sensory overload and subsequent often identified maladaptive behaviors may be related to a single issue of brain processing. Practical responses for some individuals who have been diagnosed with autism have been successfully treated with application of medication, and others, a combination of diet change associated with immune inflammation response and for some ABA applied behavior analysis, which, by the way, brings up one of the issues that have commonly brought up by parents or uh, institutional research is an immune inflammation response could be a connection that parents associate with vaccines and the onset of autism. An immune response could provide the catalyst for autism the same way that some diets also are associated to play a role in. Current research does not seem to confirm this connection directly, but I feel it is important to not dismiss parents' fears and concern, but to keep in mind an open perspective of additional responses by the 
body's immune system, body's physiological reaction as addressed to how we label autism. The other applied behavior analysis, ABA, is the use of these techniques and principles to bring about meaningful and positive change in behavior. And I'm sure many of the parents and people who have been associated with their children or someone they love or know who has autism has is familiar with the ABA. This stems from a science done many years ago in the early 1900s associated with Pavlov's theories of animal behavior. If you are offended, I am at times as well. As useful as ABA may be, the ultimate goal is to change behavior to increase function. My perspective from a cognitive functioning point of view is the complete opposite. Support cognitive function, the brain and positive behaviors will follow. How does that work? The reason some important medication work for individuals with autism is the reduction of pain. Obviously, the greater the function of an individual on the autistic spectrum, the greater the chance that ABA therapy will work just because of the increased self-control of that individual and the higher functioning. But if anyone has worked with severe autism and tried ABA, it will be noticed of the increased failure rate. However, they will also notice as soon as the, quote, pain is reduced, for example, through medication, limiting sensory input, every individual usually calms and responds to instructions. Because the autism spectrum is so wide and includes such a variable issues, this in inevitably leads to the necessity of a wide range of techni techniques that may or may not be applied. At the bottom of this pile, we arrive once more at the beginning, the brain. The brain is calm it is 100% sure the individual behaviors will be calm. What can we do? As parents, as instructors and clinicians, the first goal should be to calm the brain and help the individual process information by training the brain. This does not mean modifying behaviors let me repeat that. We are not using Pavlovian techniques of motivation, conditioning, and response. We are supporting the brain by helping it organize itself. Imagine sensitivity of individuals on a spectrum who may be sensitive to light, sound, touch, and especially emotions. What is going on? The inputs that are not screened out or processed takes finite space within the brain, much like information on a computer screen. Just like a computer, the information 
not filed until it's been moved to the hard drive portion of the computer. And having many files open on the screen will inevitably slow the ability for an individual to organize the demands of the moment. In other words, just like on a computer, if the files, if you open 10 files on the screen, trying to get to the main hard drive, each file that is open will inevitably slow the ability for that computer to process, and in the same way, the individual relates to when so many things are going on in the mind and not organized and processed, they will inevitably slow down. And from that, the brain responds. Emotions apparently take up a very large portion of an individual's daily processing space. And for some, this competes with the data coming from their environment, such as hard environmental input, such as sound, light, smell, and touch. So much so that some individuals on the autism spectrum will often lash out when confronted with additional demands. Emotional budgeting techniques was designed to directly apply fundamental cognitive functioning methods to help the brain pathways to transfer large segments of unorganized emotions to an organized state filed in the long and short-term locations in the brain. Results indicate that there's a rapid response of lowered stress and anxiety that can be seen in an increased positive behaviors of individuals who have applied this method of influence of the brain's management of the individual's physiological reaction, reducing the perceived pain by the brain. This topic of the brain's perception of pain will be looked at in next week's podcast and the subsequent self-medication behaviors that often follow. In some individuals of high-functioning autism spectrum, clients have indicated the need for self-medication to provide immediate relief from perceived pain. So in the case of an individual, there's a response from the brain sensing that it hasn't processed the data that it has received for the day, the week, and at some point it is seeking relief from that feeling of not optimizing its ability to think. Not back pain, not pain from a cavity or sore, but unrelenting sensory pain that needs immediate attention. For those of us who do not experience that feeling, it may be hard to relate. And again, we can go back to Temple Grandin's book and discussion in which she, in her way, has solved some of that 
with techniques by using structure, wraparound, to bring those sensory issues under control. In every situation, over time, when the brain's pain is reduced, so have the maladaptive responses, which is the conscious portion of our action reflecting the brain's chemical reactions to the environment. So when we look back at the beginning and we noted that our perspective is about function, behavior following function, rather than trying to induce function from behavior. We feel that this is a greater foundational beginning to the path of solving these problems and increasing support for those who suffer from additional sensory overload. In many individuals who have completed the emotional budgeting process, which is a technique and method for which the mind is supported to share data with the parts of the brain that goes to the filing cabinet. By allowing the message and the information, especially associated with emotions, go to the part of the brain that files, the individual is then having processed this information, has the ability to receive additional information, inputs, just as we might think of putting additional information on a flash drive to increase our ability to put information on a computer screen. In the same way, when the brain identifies that it has passed on the information to its file cabinet in the brain, it then recognizes that it is not a problem to have more information inputted, a demand from the environment. It calms down. It, the physiological reaction is to feel, is to lower the stress and to lower the anxiety. In many individuals who have completed the emotional budgeting process, the need for self-medication can immediately disappear or gradually fade with continued training of the mind and developing synaptic pathways to help file this data associated with emotions. So now we return to diagnosis. When is autism autism? And when is, it, when is it just a problem of learning or ADHD? Thus, we can understand the confusion and parent frustration of labeling. Dr. Thomas Achenbach, Professor, Department of Psychiatry at the University of Vermont, has designed well-known assessments associated with children, youth, uh, self-reports, and teacher reforms to identify social and functional issues. These checklists are about functional 
issues leading to the question, what can we do to increase function and positive behaviors? Rather than what labels can we hang on an individual as defining billboards of problems? When we view the individual's challenges as needs of our ability to increase support system, labeling issues or the lack of label no longer become a barrier to success. An optimization of the individual's adaptation to institutional expectations. When is disability become another word for cannot? And when is it just a definition of what we can do as a society to support the challenges facing all of our children, such as we have for eyes by fitting them with glasses instead of calling them blind or keeping them from doing what they want to do or work? We now have the opportunity to explore effective means to support all of our children with varying degrees of challenges. In this way, in Talk Revolution, we are urging our audience to think about autism not just as a disability, but as a diverse means of thinking that when it's not fitting our adaptive expectations, we should be responsible to see how we can best support our society so that they are meeting their goals in the same way that we would fit glasses to those who cannot see well. This is an important difference that from the very beginning, we will end up in our next podcast, the description of diagnosis, what that means in the mental health field. It is different from the description of what we might consider diseases. As a disease, Doctors have generally classified what a disease is and what the treatment does, and then there should be a result, a successful result. A medicine is applied. In the case of mental health issues or in diagnosis such as autism, bipolar, the list goes on, we have not always understood what the best treatment is and whether it should be called a disease and whether it should be something that is normal or abnormal. It is this Talk Revolution podcast that would like to bring to light a different way of viewing our world around us in the way that we want to be effective. I would like to introduce Dr. Cynthia Sambataro, who is also familiar with autism and diagnosis of mental health issues, as well as having been a clinician herself. Uh, 
she would like to discuss part of uh, today's topic, autism. Hello, my name is Dr. Cynthia Sambataro, and also the other half with Paul Sambataro, his wife. Um, I would like to also add that with, with instances of autism, there's also a need to screen for mental health issues, which have long been overlooked, um, like depression, with the individuals that have autism spectrum disorder. Uh, we see depression, anxiety, and a tendency to be overwhelmed. And it's important to always advocate for your child or a child under your auspices to make sure that they are being adequately screened for for mental health disorders. Often we are um, crowded by the bigger picture. We look at autism and everything that that is in terms of the diagnosis. And we forget that the real human being is in pain. And for a child that moves through childhood and then to adolescence, many times uh, they observe. They have the ability to observe the world around them and what's happening with peers. And depression is something that we're seeing more and more of. And it really needs to be screened through mental health providers in your community or at least discussed with the, with your pediatrician and medical doctors. Removing depression and anxiety from a child with autism helps them be able to navigate their world in a more efficient manner and improve functionality overall. But I will hand it back to Paul. I just wanted to make that note that mental health disorders should be screened. Thank you, Dr. Cynthia. That's a great reminder and note because there are many kinds of, there are many doctors who have different ideas of what autism severity means. Uh, this has been an issue in which um, some have ruled out autism because of depression. Um, if there's ADHD involved, and on Temple Grandin's website, she makes note of the fact that uh, there are a lot of different ways to diagnose or consider a diagnosis, and when does one supersede the other, or are they to include all of those issues? And again, this is, goes back to what is important at the foundational level. We are not dismissing any of the diagnosis or methods or treatments, but simply want to get to the bottom of the pile to start, in which then from there can build from each step to include or increase the support as needed to help that child get to the middle of the bell curve. And as a reminder, the bell curve was discussed in the first podcast. 
as an important means of identifying when we consider children to be challenged or have a disability. And this is where Dr. Achenbach's assessments recognizes that when we have a child outside the bell curve, it is not simply that that child should be dismissed or labeled as cannot do something. But from our perspective, what are the supports needed to make help that child fit in the mainstream? So in many situations, and this will be an important part brought up in special education, we are geared up for only between 15 and 25% of the adaptive skills of our children, and the rest fall to the wayside of the inability to meet institutional expectations. So when these children, students, individuals fall outside of the the institutional expectations, we then create the language of disability rather than the language of what what do we need to do to support that person to fit the the institutional expectations. We do not necessarily need to widen the gap or widen the curve to increase our boundaries of expectations, but if not that, then we can increase our support so they meet the expectations. This gives value, and this comes back to, again, the unintended consequences of value in regards to labels. As we label disabilities, our value tends lower to do not, do not do these things that are set as goals, do not do those things that others are, have abilities for, and so on. So to see through the lens of can do, the lens of our perspective is the foundational aspect. What are we going to start with? We start in our mind, our talk revolution, we start with the mind. That's where it all begins in our perspective. And by viewing it through the mind's eye, so to speak, we are looking at the body and the response as a secondary. Again, we started with ABA is an example of our attempt to change behavior, change function through the control of behavior. And our other broadcast, and perhaps next, next month, we will also discuss juvenile delinquency, prison reform, through the eye of cognitive functioning, rather than, again, trying to change behavior to change function. And in this way, we feel that we're starting at the foundation of change, not trying to stifle change through rigid applications of institutional expectation on a behavior. But we are positive the reason we know, aside from research and aside from outcomes, positive outcomes, and 
great efficacy results. We feel that this is the positive step up from function to behavior because we are encouraged and believe the mind's ability does do what it does to understand what helps itself and that by helping itself and supporting the mind encourages, does lead to positive behavior. That positive behavior is the norm when the mind is given the support that it seeks. Otherwise, we would not have the population that we have now on this earth. We are cooperative. People are good in the way that they work together. It is the norm. And by working with the norm and working with positive, we can see that by building that foundation, behavior follows. And when behavior follows, now we can add how do we support this child to gain the distinction of coming back to the middle to meet institutional expectations. This is an important part of our introduction to the broadcast, to our ongoing podcast series. So we will address uh, overall, as I mentioned in the very beginning, society's problems, uh, many of the disabilities, again, uh, outcomes of poverty, violence, crime. These are things that by one by one, we will address to see what it is that from the mind's eye, from the cognitive functioning perspective, how does this, by supporting these things, how do each of these problems, how do we, how this relates to problem solving for each of these issues that have not only overwhelmed the individual, but apparently also overwhelmed overwhelmed us as society. And last week, we touched on violence in the school. And again, this week, we still have increased violence at a gaming in Florida. This is a situation, again, that is not only related to the topic of today, but also last week with the foundation of how does one be processed so that their mind will problem solve instead of reacting, instead of reacting in a behavior way to being overwhelmed. And by going back to that, we could look towards how do we reorder ourselves in a way that directs positive behavior and positive outcomes instead of looking at ways from the top down. In other words, controlling the behavior through increased oversight, increased monitoring, increased uh, police force, increased structures to limit our movement in out of schools, 
in, out of airports, in, out of uh, society, cameras, those may be needed in the end, but by starting from the bottom of the pile, the mind, we can see that we instead may find ways to be much more effective. The efficacy could, in the end, save billions and billions in many of the systems that we've designed from the top down rather than from the bottom up. And the bottom, by that I mean from the cognitive functioning perspective. From the top down, from trying to structure behavior to uh, follow, to increase change function. The outcome of trying to force function from behavior is what we would, I would consider from the perspective of efficacy, failure. Prisons, juvenile delinquency, these in my mind are failures of being able to structure the behavior and have function follow because obviously if you have failed to function in society, you have done something to cross boundaries. You have done something to harm yourself or harm others. And in this failure, we have thrown up our hands and put people in warehouses to say that we don't know how to help. This is a punishment which we have decided that we do not know what to do and this is the result of that failure. And it's a very expensive failure. And as we increase our demands on other things that we would like to spend money on, I believe that it's time it is a revolution in how we think. It is a revolution in how we proceed and look at society in terms of from the bottom up. I would like to especially point out again to uh, two of the individuals that I've mentioned today as being important aspects of advocacy and moving social change in regards to improving the assessments. Uh, one, I would like to mention again, Dr. Thomas Achenbach. He has been instrumental for my perspective as I was studying psychology in the university and looking at it from a different point of view of structure. Again, that would be from not a point of view of diagnosis, but a pro as a point of view of assessing function and how that then can be used to assert support for that function. And also, Temple Grandin has been a great advocate for autistic community, autism. Through her understanding, she has been diagnosis with autism and has been a professor in animal husbandry. She has written several books and has written about techniques that are used today uh, in varying degrees. I myself have seen, and as a school psychologist, uh, been encouraged by some of the techniques and 
impressed by the results. And I would recommend to any uh, of our audience uh, to go to her website and see the work that she is doing. And she is now working uh, much more with children uh, than she has and uh, doing great work. So those two are influential for myself, but I believe I also have a great information for the audience uh, for autism. Again, if you have any questions out there for uh, special education or autism in general, this is about this podcast series is a reflection on how we view and how we can move forward with the idea that function will drive behavior, that labels, though not necessary for the medical community, insurance purposes, can also be a barrier to the ideas of uh, create stigma and stereotypes that prevent the idea that supportive measures are the important part of bringing an individual into the curve, the bell curve of expectation. So when we know that there is a line in which a person crosses and he is outside, we seek to give that support to push that individual to the inside of that expectation. And while it may not be perfect, uh, having the open mind to understand the bottom basis and then build from there the supportive measures that we did discuss today, then we can seek to find ways to not call our challenges disabilities, but rather the challenges of society to support individuals to meet their goals and society's goals. I would just like to mention as we have a few minutes left, that when I would like to clarify on the bipolar issue, I have several books that will be coming out uh, either at the end of this year or next year. Um, one is called The Bipolar War and the other The Autism Revolution. The reason I have brought up bipolar disorder as being on the opposite spectrum is that as with any label, it comes to the mind of representing cognitive functioning that in many ways is different than the autistic function. It is not necessarily seen through the eyes. You may not find the differences in CAT scans or PET scans. And then it's not been defined by neuroscientists. But when identified through assessments, such as cognitive assessments, such as the assessment child checklist, uh, these assessments 
are incredibly important to identifying the brain's function as well as these electronic CAT scans and PET scans. And when identified through the assessments of uh, such as the Woodcock-Johnson, such as those that Dr. Ockenbach have designed, the pattern differences of responses can be related to the differences in how the brain is formed and the function that it is. When this is, the patterns are seen, one can place a group on the functioning scale at one end and another at the other end. And this is what I have done to understand the underlying theories of bipolar function and autism functions, where there may be overlap, where the distinction is, the differences, and then how people who are, who may not be diagnosed, who do uh, have normal behaviors or behaviors that are shared with the largest number in that population, then we begin to see how the continuum curve of overlapping abilities is not simply a signal of a disease, but relates to not only where they are on the, on the curve, but also culture. And the interplay of culture and our functional abilities will again be one of our podcast topics uh, later on this year. And how that plays into the ability of our our identification of what a disorder is. So in some groups, bipolar disorder would not be a bipolar disorder, but actually part of the population. And the same can be said for autism. In a group, autistic behavior would seem normal, whereas in another population would be abnormal. And Dr. Thomas Ockenbach addresses many of his research in this area, instrumental in providing the underlying research to understanding culture and our how we identify disorders and in what way. So, if one is removed from one population and placed in another, their function may be considered, to some extent, a disorder, whereas it would be normal back in their own culture including that there are culture plays an integral part in creating structure for that population. It's not perfect structure, not a structure that we might think is uh, positive in every aspect, but has provided that population's ability to grow and survive. In, in its own way for that environment. And in our case, some cases we may think that it's harsh, but given the environment that that cultural uh, grew, it then relates to the ability of that population to succeed, whether by 
good means or by uh, what we would consider harsh means, uh, it has allowed that population to grow and, of course, succeed. But at times when it's an individual is removed from that population and placed in another one, it would seem out of place. So we may think of someone who comes from another country, another culture, and comes to America, they would may seem out of place and, and they're functioning. What the limits were in their country may not be in place in our country, and so behaviors may be exaggerated or out of place and considered crossing boundaries here where the culture from their origins may have put limits on that just for that reason. And as again, I will address that in following in the following podcast in a series of culture and our mental health. I wanted to bring that up to make sure, to highlight the the suggestion that I had put bipolar on one end and autism on the other, and that those of us who are not diagnosed, we share the brain functioning, not necessarily to the degree or to the degree that it becomes a severe handicap or a challenge to adapt adaptive abilities to meet our current institutional expectations. And that includes school, institutional expectations can be defined as school, work, nonverbal understanding of social cues. If I go to here in America, I can walk into a store, I'm not concerned about address how I dress particularly, but that I am dressed in another culture. It would be, uh, it may be a great concern how I dress. These are nonverbal cues that culture has defined in order to place limits and structure around function, brain function. And when the functioning is not, when the cultural constraints and understanding is changed or is not there, then the brain function may adapt. It may express itself similar to gene expression the way a genetics does. And that is something that uh, we will address next time. So again, my next podcast will be about brain's perception of pain and how they may be associated with our behaviors. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com. For parents and caregivers, individuals and educators, copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul from Pataro. Consultations are available through EmotionalBudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.